died at the age of 103 for 15 years she kept her virginity not a bad record for this vicinity good evening roger good evening nick and welcome everyone to episode five of ribbon of memes we are in 1975 Mm -hmm. and we are of course though we may need a bigger podcast I'm just going to keep doing this till you stop me. <laughs> uh, we are, of course, talking about Jaws. Um, and uh, disclaimer alert, this is... I mean, my favourite film of all time changes depending on the season and the day, but it is the one I most commonly describe as my favourite film of all time. So, And we, uh, we should say there are going to be spoilers, but everybody's seen Jaws, right? <laughs> Presumably everyone has, except... Yeah, I, I, I had never seen this before. Uh, which, which is one of the reasons we picked it, uh, which is an odd, odd state to be in because obviously I'd seen references and parodies and so on often enough that I had a pretty good idea of the general scheme of things. I think there is a situation of being aware enough of a film to feel like you've seen it, which I found myself in with Wizard of Oz. I'd never actually watched Wizard of Oz, but I hmm. felt that I knew it well enough that I had seen it. <laughs> uh, but what, what I felt, I, I also read the book, uh, by Peter Benchley. Oh, Roger. Um, sorry. Before watching it, because it was my last chance to read it before watching it. And I think as a result of that, I, I was very much primed with the outline of the story, and what I was able to see was what was done in a, in a film sense to make it a good film, as opposed to just to tell the story. Well, let's do, start with our traditional... Uh, this is a spoilery... Um, uh, podcast, by the way. We are going to delve right into it. Um, but we'll start with the traditional summary of the film, which most people know by now. Chief Brody is a New York cop who has moved to Amity for the Amity, which is an island not unlike Martha's Vineyards, um, uh, off the East Coast, presumably of um, uh, New England, that sort of area. <laughs> um, he has moved there for a quiet life. Unfortunately, what has also moved there is a large predatory Carcaridon Carcaridus, also known as a Great White, um, which starts munching its way through the townsfolk. The mayor of the city does not want to know because um, Amity is a summer town and requires, requires summer dollars. Um, there is a... A sort of subplot involving the cover-up or vague cover-up of the town to pretend the shark attack is not happening. And it ends with three men on a boat being uh, attacked by a shark. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's suitably um, vague. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so, uh, speaking of the book and the screenplay, Peter Benchley is credited as the screenplay as well, uh, along with Carl Gott... I don't know quite how to pronounce Gottlieb. Gottlieb. Gottlieb, um, who uh, who was was an actor and a comedian, and he hadn't previously been a script doctor, but I think he was a friend of the director, a little-known director, um, you've probably never heard of him, by the name of Steven Spielberg, um, who then was little-known, at least... um, but yeah, became it, quite widely known. I, I think the main thing he'd done before this point uh, was Duel. 
Yes, he directed Sugarland Express, which had had a limited, which interestingly enough was kind of a, a Spielbergian take on Bonnie and Clyde, <laughs> kind of, which had. So, been so let's successful. not put that on our list just at the moment. Yes. Perhaps we won't. Uh, but Jewel, I have seen and is a phenomenally good film. And I, I'd largely, I think you're right, he was hired on the strength of Jewel rather than anything else that he'd done. But he was a relatively inexperienced young director and the shoot was a mess. It was a nightmare, wasn't it? And the, uh, I mean, water the, the, yeah. is a problem anyway. Salt water is worse. Yes. Uh, uh, they were cobbling together script pages the night before shooting. Uh, Spielberg is, is, didn't take a credit, but he, he was certainly involved in the rewrites, as, along with Gottlieb. The shark didn't work. Spielberg mm-hmm. got so depressed he named the shark after his lawyer, <laughs> Bruce. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, uh, people. even the night before the film was shown, people thought that everyone would laugh at the obviously fake rubber shark. Mm-hmm. Uh, which... It is. I mean, the fortunate thing is that sharks look pretty rubbery anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, the, but... the, the thing I found most noticeable, and possibly I'm a little specialised in this regard, is is the sort of jowls around the sides of the mouth, which a real shark does not have, but obviously yes. they, they needed for the mechanism for the jaws. In a way, it creates a sort of distinctive look for that shark particularly, and that, yeah, he's got a kind of chubby cheeks <laughs> <laughs> in a way that a real shark doesn't. And you do, I think... One of the failings of the film, uh, the special effects are a bit of a failing, uh, and I find it painful at, at parts, and particularly when there's cuts of clearly real sharks that are interspersed with cuts of Bruce. Mm. Uh, I, I does suffer a bit by comparison, but I would... Uh, I, I, I try not to gush, but it is so masterfully edited that it does not matter that the special effects are a bit ropey. Yeah, and similarly, all, there were all sorts of inconsistencies uh, because of the way the script kept getting revised. Yeah, things like uh, how how many people were supposed to have died at a particular point. Um, <laughs> some some of those are still in there. But I mean, we're not it, at it, big it was... sleep levels of confusion, right? <laughs> no, no, I mean, that, this is not deliberate confusion. This is just the script no. got rewritten between shooting A and shooting B. Um, the, yeah, the, there's a point uh, after Ben Gardner has died... And and his body has been found. They're still talking about two people dead. Uh, That's right. Yes. But Though I, I believe I always put that down to the mayor very much playing down. <laughs> how, how many people? The, the, the thing is, uh, I I would like to give credit to the film editor Werner Fields, who, whom the crew christened Mother Cutter. Uh, <laughs> I, I was not aware of that. And any Jaws facts, I'm happy to hear. I I think a lot a lot of what makes the film excellent. Is up to her work on yes. this. There is a lot to be said. I have heard this. I don't want to say great too much, but I have heard a lot um, recently about how female editors, who were involved in many of the the films that I know and love, actually are way better at it than. And part, initially, they were put in that role because it seemed like a less fun and less manly role, um, but actually have been instrumental. For instance, um, I forget the editor. Of Raids of the Lost Ark, George Lucas's ex-wife, um, who reinstated wisely, uh, or forced them to shoot actually the final scene at the end of Raids of the Lost Ark, where Indy is reunited with Marion, um, mm-hmm. and uh, just ends the film in a much better, much better way um, with um, her taking him out for a drink, which is just basically her question was, 
what happened to Marion <laughs> at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's just, yeah. So I, I think female influences, uh, female editors have been, a, as far as I can tell, a tremendous influence on film. And here too, definitely, because it is, oh, I don't know about perfectly edited, but it's, I, I'm going to, talking of Ben Gardner's boat, the mm. editing in that scene where um, Hooper finds the boat and finds the tooth and it just, I don't know, to the nanosecond perfect moment, the corpse floats into view. Just when you, you're slightly relaxing from, you think it, that jump scare, mm-hmm. and it is a jump scare, it's a cheap jump scare, but it is one of the only jump scares I actually enjoy in cinema and certainly one of the best. I've At least seen. it's not a spring-loaded cat. <laughs> At least it's not a spring-loaded cat. Um, sorry, I'm just going to gush about yours. Yeah, well, I, I will say, first of all, I I enjoyed this. Um, mm. I I found myself, uh, unlike uh, Chinatown and Badlands, I didn't have to put myself into seventies film watching mode to enjoy it. I think perhaps because this this has been so widely imitated for better or worse, it still feels to be like a modern film rather than an old film. I would I would totally agree. It feels very. Yeah, it doesn't feel like a 70s period piece and it hasn't dated. It feels like a modern film. And that's probably because it was a template for a lot of blockbusters that we've Oh, yeah. Well, that, that's the other thing, of course. Um, th- this is definitely the film that made the summer blockbuster a thing. You know, b- before this, the general feeling was, you know, why, why is anybody cr- going to cram into a cinema on a hot summer day? They didn't mm-hmm. have air conditioning in those days, after all. Uh, <laughs> Still don't entirely understand that, I must say. <laughs> but... Uh, well, this uh, and, is coming and so um, it, it had a relatively low budget, mm. and not not a lot of studio input, because it was meant to be. You know, it was expected to be a low budget. It might make a bit of money. Nobody's expecting great things of it. And yet, it ushered in the end of the the new wave and the beginning of is it new Hollywood? You would call it. Um, you could, this, I suppose. This blockbuster and 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 it's George is lamented by. Um, by critics and people who are more interested in auteur theory as the uh, as the end of that period where directors could kind of do what they wanted, or the beginning of the end, should we say, that that golden few years in the seventies that we have just watched a, a number of films through, where where the director could be more artistic and could mumble his dialogue and could have a bad ending. Um, <laughs> and uh, the plot didn't have to make sense and you didn't have to like the characters. And they could say something true. And for all my love of Jaws, I don't think it's got a lot to say about the human condition or marine biology. <laughs> I think it is a fantastic entertainment vehicle. I don't the, necessarily think that's a bad thing in a film. Yeah. But the thing that it does that I think could do with being more widely imitated is that it is clearly an action film, mm. but it is a character driven action film. The, the, the things mm. that are happening because people are choosing to make them happen, they're responding in particular ways to events and that brings on the next event. Uh, they, they have personalities. Um, it's a, anybody who is daft enough to read my trailer reviews, I know there are one or two people out there who do this. Um, the, the thing that I, I keep complaining about with modern action films is that they don't bother to tell me why this thing is happening. Hmm. Um, I, I, I recently saw The Old Guard, which did a superb job of this, but it was an exception. Uh, in any given fight, and there are quite a lot of fights in that film, 
I can say, okay, they're in it because of this, they're trying to achieve that. The bad guys are trying to achieve the other thing. Um, and it, and it's all driven by the personalities. And here it's also driven by the personalities, rather than right. just, you know, grunty soldier, they did him wrong, he's going to ha- get his own back. Uh, yeah, an explosion or a fight in itself, it's not an enjoyable thing. You don't, I don't Well, I'll argue with you on explosions. But... <laughs> okay, but okay, in itself, it's a mildly enjoyable thing. But the... Really, and in kind of script terms, it is a way of dramatically upping the ante in that the stakes are going to change. Um, something dramatic is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And that only really matters, one, if you believe that something will dramatically happen as a result of this dramatic thing. And two, if you care about the people that that dramatic thing is happening to, and the classic contrast there would be Die Hard 1 which is you know is character driven mm-hmm. you believe these characters are weak and can be injured and can feel pain but they will somehow make their way out of it compared to die hard or whatever the the last three are called um i believe <laughs> there's three after well after they should have stopped um where you you no longer care or know anything about the character they're not the characters you knew and you know they're not going to get hurt a James Bond films would be another example where you, you know they're not going to get hurt whatsoever. And so upping the stakes has no interest to you. Um, whereas yeah. this is... Well, uh, Di- Die Hard in it, it itself it ended the, uh, what you might call the beefcake action era. Mm. Um, of, you know, here here is a big tough guy who who, who walks through gunfire and, and basically never gets more than trivially wounded. The the point about Bruce Willis in that was he was not an action hero. He he was known as most mostly a, a, well, a not comedy a, actor from Moonlighting, wasn't he? Yeah, um, and so here is the everyman action hero as opposed to the big grunty man action hero. Unfortunately, that gradually uh, steroided its way up back to <laughs> back yeah. to the grunty action hero, um, and now we have superheroes. Um, but uh, even now, the superhero films. Um, have more character and heart than those grunty action films did. Anyway, we're segued a, a little away from George, but I can yeah, agree. Back, back, back to Chrissy. <laughs> because th- this is a great opening sequence. Mm. Um, mm. It, it, it's it's near dark. Um, I think this, this is one of the few times I think it's something might work better in the cinema. I watched it in a darkened room just to get the right impression. Yes. Um, because it is very dark. You can't really quite see what's going on. Um, they cast Susan Backlinney basically for three reasons. She was already a stunt woman. She right. could swim, and she was prepared to get naked on camera. Okay, that all essential. But she was very, very in so yeah. much as she had to act. She's well, very good at. Do, do bear in mind I mean, that there are rumours about this in in various directions. But as far as I've been able to find out, she was aware of roughly what was going to happen in terms in terms of the harness pulling her underwater. She did not know when the first one was going to, when the first tug was going to happen, but after that she, she knew what the script was. So everything after the surprise of that first tug is acting. And it's damn good acting. You are terrified. That is a human in shock and trauma. Um, and that, yeah, I mean, she is on, she's strapped to an underwater, kudos to anyone who could even think about acting when they are strapped to a harness which is swinging them backwards and forwards and pulling them underwater I would, I mean that is um, as you say, a trained stunt woman uh, obviously you would need some kind of training in that because that is a tough role, but that is a, that is an, a, quite an opening Yeah, and and this is one of those I, th- I think this is something we may come back to this, this is one of those things where 
at least at least in terms of the end result everything has come out right everything everything has lined up to make it work and yes. sometimes you you some you always try to make that happen but it doesn't always and just sometimes everything fits together and and th- this is where that starts for me that uh, she is the right person for that scene oh absolutely and i think um the casting is um it's phenomenal. I mean, none of these count. None of, I mean, as far as as you say, this was not meant to be a blockbuster because no one really knew what a blockbuster was. The, none of these mm. characters were movie stars. They were all uh, established actors. Richard Dreyfuss had been in um, American Graffiti, I think. Not, yeah, not not a lot else. This this is of course before Close Encounters and before he developed his heroic cocaine habit. Uh, yeah, that was uh, well. I will <laughs> avoid Drapes' heroic cocaine habit, though um, we may come back to it. But yes, as you say before, Roy Scheider had been in the French Connection, and yeah, and a few I, other character films. I, I think that was a concern because in the French Connection, he is basically a tough cop. He's, he does it with some interest, but that was what he was known for. And there, there was yeah. some concern. You know, is, is he just going to do that again? Is is he going to be? You know, he's playing another cop. Is he going to play the same cop? Uh, yeah. No, he isn't. Is is the answer? He did a, a very good job of a. Oh, dare I say, a fish out of water. <laughs> um, uh, Ro- Robert I... Shaw, of course, had been in in everything. I mean, he 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 was uh, Red Grant in From Russia with Love. Uh, uh, yes, I mean he's he was he would he was a phenomenal character and bit part actor. Could he been Henry the Eighth? I had yeah, the fifth. And and, uh, and one of the mobs. Mo- well, he was Henry the Eighth in the Man for All Seasons. Uh yes, yes, that's right. It was Henry the Eighth. Uh, he was uh, he was one of the mobsters in the Sting. Uh, Jeff Haller, yeah, I remember, yeah, he's phenomenal in that. But to me, I don't know, it's not, I would like to say he, you know, we've talked about um, John Houston dominating his scenes in Chinatown. I feel Shaw doesn't quite do that. I mean, the minute he enters the film, uh, as Brody says, um, colourful, isn't he? Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's an interesting, he's an amazing character, but the the camera is generous. I don't know about Robert Shaw being generous enough, but the camera is generous enough to not let him dominate it let, it gives the other characters reactions to that um and ways to play off it and you see how they're reacting to this extremely um kind of a low rent captain ahab mm-hmm. <laughs> that might be one way of it. well yeah that that one of the things that i think is wisely downplayed from the book is is the whole moby dick angle i'm i mm. i will admit that i laughed out loud at the death of quint in the book yeah because it's, it is um... so very much look i'm being literary <laughs> it's um i mean he can't avoid quite well um sorry well so uh oh, i'm trying to think should we concentrate on the first half of the film first because um yeah right. i forget the actor of um but i love him the mayor is just the most quintessential sleazy i've forgotten he had been around in a lot of other films too a lot of westerns i believe oh goodness i well uh hasty googling will solve the problem but i think he is phenomenal in his role uh, the 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 fact that he um, influences Brody, um, Mar- Murray for, Hamilton, Murray Hamilton, that's it. Um, he is phenomenal as that. You know, he really sells it, and you actually sells it to the point where you actually feel some sympathy for him. That you know, he does. You do understand this is the whole town's livelihood. Oh, I uh, as a side issue, I believe almost this is the first film we have watched that just about passes the Bechdel test in that there are two women in the sea at one point <laughs> talking about whether um, whether Ellen Brody can become an islander or not. Um, the scene lasts about three seconds, so I'm not sure it quite <laughs> counts, but it's the closest we've come so far. Mm. 
I, I do think Vaughn is interesting because you know, obviously in the book, uh, Benchley felt that he, he didn't have enough, uh, mm. motiva- uh, motivation just, just as presented in the film. He, he, he's got this whole mafia connection thing going on, which, gotta say, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. In that location, you wouldn't have thought there'd be a lot of. It's, it's not, not that crime. so much. I mean, it, 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 it's more that the whole scheme just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense because, yeah. It just what, what I, I, yeah. but but uh, here, I here, don't feel the film suffers from the lack of that mafia plot. I I agree that wouldn't have helped. I do think it, there is the scene in the hospital where he sort of pulls it together. Uh, but I I still feel that it it it's thin. This whole yeah. On the on the one hand, yes, we need the money. On the other hand, um, yeah, somebody else dies. We get, we're going to be in even more trouble. And, and I mean, that, I... that that second half is never quite acknowledged. I mean, it, it ought to be a balancing act between those two. And of course, in, in in the real world, on the third hand, somebody else dies. Everybody and his dog is going to come and try to see the shark, which, which, which does <laughs> yeah. happen in the book, to be fair. Okay, which doesn't really well. The film doesn't really give it a chance. I will point out on the um, ignoring the problem until you have no choice. We have just lived through a pandemic with a government led by Boris Johnson. And I will leave it there <laughs> at that point. Um, I, I, yeah, I suppose he's in some ways pantomime and thin, but I think he sells it. I, to me, I think he sells it well. Um, and he's Certainly, required I mean, to be that character for the, for the plot. It, it's, but, it's a very much imitated role and often done much more thinly, to be fair. So, yes. Um, though it's interesting and if if you if you had um you, if you just wanted to say look we've got to have a scene where he he tells uh, brody to lay off the obvious place to do that would be his office but we yes. don't have that we have it, we have it on that little car ferry yeah that was a nice thing and, yes. and it makes it much more interesting it, it it's visually interesting but it's also uh, it's a sense of my authority is not in my office. My authority is in this whole place. I can confront yeah, you anywhere true. I like. Because he is, he's kind of an avatar of the town, if you like. And so that's part. Um, interesting, his, um, his sidekick character um, on that very scene, uh, aside from the, the coroner, is um, Carl Gottlieb, who mm-hmm. co-wrote the script. Um <laughs> And actually wrote his own character out quite. He'd been cast as that character, then wrote it down quite a bit when he, when he had to write the script. <laughs> quite wisely so, because he's not, um, not the most interesting character. Yeah. Um, so Hooper turns up, um, Richard Dreyfus in one of his earliest roles, and I don't know, is again, is a charismatic screen presence. Not like Bogart, but he is clearly someone who has a nice outside view of the situation, who clearly kind of sympathises with Brody's view. Uh, I love that scene in the um, in the coroner's office. The this was not a boating accident. I just he really sells the passion of that character. Um, uh, how did you feel about Hooper? Because he's very different in the book. He's not a yeah. really likable character in the book. He, he's very much more sympathetic here. I I, I suspect to some extent um, he became Spielberg's idea of a proxy for himself. You know, because the, 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 the way I see the book and. I will come back to this more in the second half, but the, the it's a it's basically a line between Hooper as the man who is too civilized and therefore ineffective, and yes. Quint as the man who's too uncivilized and therefore ineffective, and Brody is in the middle somewhere. 
Yes, yeah. Whereas here, it becomes more interesting. It becomes a triangle. Um, there, there is the the bit in the boat where where yeah the the male bonding bit, mm. but it's Quint and Hooper who are bonding, and Brody who is standing off to the side. It's Quint, Quint and Hooper who who are, who are doing this whole comparing the scars thing. That I again, we're skipping to the second half, but that I love the moment when Brody just glances down at his appendectomy scar and then quietly <laughs> puts, yeah. his, puts his top back down. It's uh, it's very nice. So that so that there's actually more subtlety of characterization here. I think um, that the, the sense of the class struggle is still there. Yes, but it's. Yeah, perhaps more simplistic because Quintus is an awkward bugger, but he's yes. still basically clearly a good guy. He's just a greedy good guy. Yes. Yeah, he's not a he's not a pantomime villain in this. And um, and, and, and Hooper is also a good guy. Yeah, that's well. I think again we're segueing towards the second half, but one of the big reasons I love Jaws is that it segues from this yeah disaster movie to this close um almost uh, well it, it moves from this kind of broad spectrum i was about to say antibiotic things i'm doing too much revision at the moment <laughs> <laughs> uh from this broad view to this very narrow almost um wartime film where you know you've got these three buddies in very claustrophobic conditions sure. um uh, they're mismatched and they will do what they have to do to get the job done I just that dynamic just worked perfectly for me, and that I I wouldn't love the film without the second half and the orca. Yeah, though I th- I think particularly since I started to become aware of the uh, three act structure standard for filmmaking, mm. um, which is even more obvious in television, of course. Yeah. Um, I I tend to find myself looking at okay, here is about the one third mark. What is the big yes. transition that's happening here? Uh, but this is. To, to use the cliche, it is very much a film of two halves. They, they are more or yes. less the halves. The second half's very slightly shorter. Yes. And the the the, the pacing works superbly. Um, yes. There is obviously a lot more going up. Well, no, I can't even say that. There's more action in the second half. There's but, more shark, for sure. <laughs> but the, the, there's that... The first half is, is obviously mostly about building up the tension and occasionally releasing it. But it never yes. it never overdoes the building up the tension. It's very easy to say, you know, doom foreboding at great length, uh, which I, which is some, something I I actually don't enjoy and f- find quite difficult to watch when it's overdone. But I never got that feeling here. I think even the uh, yes, so I agree. I I think we've talked about the editor. I don't know how much was her influence and how much was Spielberg's, but I feel it just gets the balance between calm and tension building and uh, release of terror for, throughout the whole film and it's probably one of the reasons it's one of my favourite films it just throughout the whole film it just gets it put this mm. rising challenge right to the end and it's only right at the end where the creaks in the special effects start to show and to me by that point you're so invested in the plot and the characters that you will overlook the, the slightly rubbery rubbish looking shot. yeah and and even then i mean what watched at full speed in not it's not especially high def mm. it they did a phenomenal job uh, considering what they were working with um <laughs> 
Well, I'm guessing again. Sorry, sorry. So, um, I'm just thinking of other things. I mean, the, the what you might call the real opening after that first scene. Um, yes. That sort of depressingly suburban bedroom. Yes. But it's doing the it's doing the basic exposition job. You know, here is the police chief. He's an outsider. He was in New York. A, a modern film would probably say, oh, you know, something bad happened and that's why he's here now. But he never bothers to say that. We don't know why he moved here. We don't need to know. It's, it's not relevant. The point is he has moved here. Yes. And then we've got um, a, another bit of characterization for Brody. Uh, when, when they find the first body on the beach, you've got that, that cop who can just about manage to blow a whistle in between probably throwing up, though they don't show it. Yes, but he's clearly, yes. Versus Bro- Brody, yeah, all right, this is nasty, but I've seen it before. I know, I know what this is. That I love that he sells that. You know, he's he's a New York cop. He's seen he's seen worse than this, and he. But it doesn't. It's only. It's just in the playing of it. You know, there's never explicit. You just you can see his reaction and you understand why because you know a bit about this character already. Yeah, uh, and I, I think that's a that's a very important change from the book. In fact, that he was in in the book he's a local, mm. and there's all this class struggle between the the poor year round people and the richer summer only people who have the money and then there's some of that there in in, in the film but it, it it's it's not it's not um reinforced and underlined the way the book does is it because it's, it's one of the big things off pre- the book the, well, the, the film the a... film is about the shark yes the, it, <laughs> there's not there's a oh, i would say there's some very vague social commentary as a subplot but it's not really attempting much in the way of social commentary um and i i don't I don't mind social commentary in my films, but this one is not particularly trying it. But it uses it as colour um, uh, to make the the film more interesting, mm. which uh, which works for me. I well, well, we're in the first half. I, I would like to mention uh, Ellen as well, played by Lorraine Gary, of course. I was wondering what you think because she has, as I remember, a much bigger role in the book than she does in the film. Well, yeah, but it's not a good role. I um, was going to say not necessarily a better role, but it is. But a ba- role. Basically, the, the book is is that's it is that's very standard nineteen seventies thing of uh, she's thinking about whether to have an affair. She has an affair. Yeah. She decides to end up back with her husband. Yeah, um, which was the entire plot of all too many nineteen seventies books plays. Yes, uh, but. The thing is that the standard filmmaker cliche is, is that change is more interesting than stasis. So what one would expect would be either it's a couple getting together or it's a couple coming apart. But what we get here is much more interesting. It's a a couple who are committed to each other. Uh, I, I'm particularly fond of that line. Um, you know, do you, do you want to take him home? Back to New York? No, home here. Yeah, that is. Uh, I, Be- yeah. Because it, it, it's that thing I've been talking about with other, with uh, uh, Faye Dunaway in particular. That sort of wordless acting. When she says "back to New York," she's thought about that. She's ready to yeah. go along with the choice, whatever it is. But... Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I could not agree more. I'm just, uh, I'm just, uh, yeah. She does a phenomenal. Again, I'm afraid I don't have Ellen, uh, Ellen's actress, um, L- Lorraine uh, Gary. Lorraine Gary, yes, of course. I, um, Who, whom I she, don't think I know from anything else, really. I don't. Uh, well, the only other films I've seen are in her Jaws sequels. I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, she 
she gets to be much more maternal than she is in the book. In fact, so does Brody. Really, gets more to be much more paternal. But well, the, um, the, the kids are in this in a way they aren't significantly in the book. Yes, and uh, that, that's up... obviously a thing Spielberg would do more later. But he he doesn't get sentimental about it. He doesn't make them the centre of the film the way you might think he would later. I um well yes, but Ellen he does it in a way that sells the fact that when she's when Ellen is running screaming because there is a shark in the pond and Michael is in the pond, you are not like, oh, God, screaming mother. You are like, oh, my goodness, this is real danger for this family, mm-hmm. which I have some uh, which I have some bond for. Um, there, is, I, there is clearly a bond between her and Hooper, um, but it is not the kind of bond in any way that is there in the film. And yeah. it's nice. that's nicely played, too. Um, yeah, again, uh, eight, eight film roles total of which this was her first, but she'd done a fair bit of, a fair bit of TV before this. Okay, I will have a look. Uh, she, and, and, she is and, a f- and two of the other film roles were Jaws films. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I certainly remember from Jaws: The Revenge with Michael Caine. Goodness me, um, <laughs> that's not. I, sorry, that was an, in no way a comment on her acting. But this it is not. That is not a film we are going to regard as a masterpiece. Uh, no, it was well, a slight comment on Michael Caine's acting in the film. Um, uh, but also the film itself. She also, I think, does a phenomenal job when she's dropping him off with um, Quint. Um, I, I just, uh, she, she's uh, as a supporting actress, which honestly uh, is all she is in this film. She does a great job. Um, mm. And I wanted to bring up the scene with Brody and his child is a three or four year old child judging by the size of the child I never used to be good at child size judging but oh, that's I, I have no idea <laughs> um just just out of toddlerhood um when the kid um starts mimicking him mm-hmm. i don't know how that scene works but it does to me at least it's just a really touching moment to describe it you know his his child is is copying him it just becomes a, a very touching moment that brings you closer to the family um yeah and and underneath that there's obviously been a certain amount of stress and that and some of this is the kid's way of uh defusing that yes you see how Brody takes his um uh his strength from the family and that makes it more important in the second half of the film when he is that's shorn away from him Hmm. Um, you know, literally by Captain Ahab. Sorry, Quince. Um, smashing, <laughs> <laughs> smashing the radio. Um, uh, oh, the, uh, what so thinking of things that really shouldn't have been copied as much as they have been. There are so many of these rip-offs where the the Quint equivalent smashes the radio, and there is only the one radio. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. I, again, it works here, uh, but I, I must say that, that uh, it does feel a bit um, plotty. Um, I mean, they, they, Robert Shaw sells it. Um, it doesn't even need to happen. I mean, there might just be nobody nearby who could render assistance. Yeah, but... or they could have had it short out or something. Though I suppose that the the uh, the way these things are designed, it's unlikely to short out by a bit of fluid in the. Um, do you have much more to say about the first half of the film? Because I'd like to talk about the. No, I, I, th- I think that's pretty much it. Um, it it's. Well, except visually, and that that's kind of the transition, because um, you, you were talking about the, the, the claustrophobic feel of the boat. Yes. But visually, the first half is all full of walls and fences and boundaries. Right, And, and the yeah. second half is out on the open ocean. Well, that's true. Yes, that's a good point. In some ways, it is... Um... 
So, so you, you've got. I, I agree with you that the feel of it is, you know, you're you're on land, you can go anywhere. You're on the ocean, you're stuck on this boat. But visually, it reverses that, and I think that's very, very clever. Do you know, I'd never thought of that, but you are absolutely right. Um, oh, I would like to mention before I forget the soundtrack, um, which is mm-hmm. one of it's not. I don't think it's the first John Williams Steven Spielberg collaboration. But it was certainly not the last. Um, but the uh, he, he was credited with reinventing the idea of an orchestral score for a film. Well, because they, they have been going out of fashion. Now, this slightly breaks our rule that, you know, if you notice a soundtrack, it's not doing its job. But I think this works on a very good level. You know, that classic film, the, the classic two notes, durdum, durdum, that everyone well, it, knows. But yeah, it, it's obviously a heresy to object to that, and I'm not going to. Uh, I would say, particularly towards the end, uh, there are these these crashing gear shifts between um, menacing action music and adventurous action music, and yeah. I, I I felt I was being it was being pumped into me how I was meant to feel because the transitions were so sudden. I agree. Well, yeah, okay. I will agree. Particularly at the end, there's a, almost there is one that grates, which is a sort of I mean I can but a, a almost jaunty, um, yeah, action not even an exploration kind of music, which Mm -hmm. does not sit well necessarily with the rest of the film. What I like about John Williams' soundtrack is it is also a subtle indication as to whether you're actually dealing with the shark or not, because Mm -hmm. the durdum is only ever used when Bruce is around. And the the whole fake situation with the fin... When the uh, when he's menacing the swimmers in the mm-hmm. uh, on the beach, I, you don't hear that at all, and it's yeah. kind of a subtle indication to you that this is a fake. And then as soon as uh, Bruce starts swimming into the pond, then yeah. it creeps up again, and you don't realise that. That just I I feel subconsciously that is a phenomenal way of ratchet, ratcheting up your tension. Um, yeah. But onto the second half of the film, we have three men in a boat. Um, to say nothing of the dog, because there is no dog. <laughs> Probably got um, eaten earlier. Yeah, it, 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 it did get eaten earlier. Good point. Oh, dear, I just Let, let's, let's point out that, that this is early Spielberg. He, he, he kills a kid and a dog in the same scene. He does, he does. It's, it's, it's uh, not... Not even that subtly either. Uh, the dog, of course, we don't see any gruesome details. But <laughs> the kid, you see him overwhelmed by the shark. Um, where the film really, I wouldn't say really comes to life because I was already in love with it by then. But when when it's the this mismatched trio mm. um, on the boat, um, I just... and, and it is a trio, as, as, as I was mentioning briefly earlier. They 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 each pull in their own direction and. There are three separate relationships going on, as opposed to just the two sides that you get in the book. Absolutely. They're all very different. Yeah, Martin is very much... Uh, sorry, Brody is very much the outsider. Um, and I suppose you could argue it's foreshadowed that he, as the know-nothing dimbo of the boat, is clearly going to be the one that, that finishes the shark <laughs> off. But it, it works very well. And then Quint and um, uh, uh, Quint and Richard Stravers is clashy it's just delightful that everything about that is delightful um to me sorry you may argue <laughs> <laughs> um well um th- think thinking of uh, accidental coincidences and so on um the original plan was was to kill hooper as as he is as he, as he is in the, in the book. book he gets eaten in the cage doesn't he I yeah believe, in the but book. Th- this was one of the um, they, they used ron and valerie taylor because y- you had to use ron and valerie taylor they were the people for, the underwater for, for, for under, underwater well yes. sharks in particular yeah. um 
So they, they, that is obviously filmed quite separately from, from most of it. Um, they want, they could, obviously couldn't get a shark of the right size and fil- filming a, an actual large shark near a normal cage didn't work. So that, so they made a mini cage and, and got a small person actor, Carl Rizzo, an ex jockey. Oh, that's right. Yes. But that's he, he, this. but he had never scuba dived before. And so when, when you're looking in, into his mask and theoretically Hooper is panicking, that, that, that is Carl Rizzo actually panicking. Because he's underwater. <laughs> yeah, okay. which also meant he was breathing fast, he was emptying his tanks fast, um, and obviously they were small tanks because like, everything had to be miniaturised for the scale. And this this was going quite badly, and more or less by accident. Um, one one of he he wasn't in it wasn't uh, even in the water at the time, but one one of the uh, sharks they were using for this um, got got caught in one of the tethers. Mm, now this I remember, and, and, and went berserk cage. and smashed the cage. Yes. Yeah, and and went, and obviously they were filming because you film everything. Uh, and when Spielberg saw it, he said, "Basically, this is this is lovely. We're not going to get a shark going berserk like that again. We'll keep that in, but we've got the shark destroying an empty cage. Therefore, we must have Hooper getting out of the cage beforehand." Oh, so it wasn't Spielberg's sentimentality. It was. Um, and now I knew the shark had got caught in the the tethers of the cage before, and there's a, there's actually only a very few shots of it in the film, mm. um, but it, it, they are spectacular shots. I'm assured the shark was uh, made it away fine after it after its <laughs> unpleasant encounter. Um, though we will talk about perhaps the unfortunate legacy of Jaws later on. Mm. Um, the, uh, yeah, that was a phenomenal scene. I, I would like to discuss the Indianapolis scene, which is about 83% of why I... It's a great film. speech. Yeah. I I would like one tiny little change to that scene. Oh, heresy. End of podcast. Because okay, yeah. I, I, w- I would like Hooper to interject along the lines of, but it wasn't like that, and then shut up, because this is obviously... It's the way Quint remembers it. That's yes. fine. It's just not the way it actually happened. Well, no. So I have, <laughs> on the strength of yours, since looked into the Indianapolis, and it was actually there's not that many inaccuracies, but actually, well, mo- most of them died of exhaustion or salt poisoning when yeah, they drank I, the water. I, yeah, and then, then obviously yeah. sharks are going to scavenge. Yeah, so it was not the shark attack that Quince, but he sells it as. I mean, he needs it. Is well, that in the book at all? I don't remember that being in no. the book at all. They needed a reason for why Shark was so obsessed. Why Shark? Why Clint was so? Why Quint was so obsessed by sharks? And mm. I, I believe it was Carl Gottlieb came up with the idea of the Indianapolis, and then him, Spielberg, Robert Shaw all had a go at the Indianapolis speech, and it's not entirely clear who came up with it mm. in the end. But that that also feeds into. Um... That that lovely bit a few a few scenes later, where he's going, in, Quint goes into the cabin, gets two life jackets, hands them to the other two. Yeah, that's right. I'll never put on a life jacket. Yeah, it's 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 so well played. But I will note that Robin Shaw, Robin Robert Shaw, um, actually tried to do the scene drunk, thinking it would add more verisimilitude to the role, <laughs> um, and was uh, was asked to do it again sober the next day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but he, I just does a. I, I know it's show, but te- show don't tell. But I don't know if all telling could be like Robert Shaw tells the story of the Indianapolis. I know they probably the reason a distress signal didn't go off was because the ship didn't sink. The ship just sank too quickly, and probably the radio room was hit in the first torpedo attack rather than they 
had delivered the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. Mm. Um, but it's just <laughs> such a good story. It's, yeah. it's so well told. Um, and then it segues into really the last, it's probably only 10 minutes to the end of the film, 10, 20 minutes, something like that. It's not very long. Um, but it is, uh, it is a scene that just captivated me. I know it off my heart. I won't put, <laughs> I won't put you in. But it, it just the the way, uh, the, even everything that the way the the violin start some way in, <laughs> the way Brody and um, uh, Richard Dreyfuss's character, uh, uh, why why can't Hooper's Hooper uh, Hooper's eyes meet uh, when he's talking about meeing um, Herbie Robinson. Um, from from Cleveland, um, mm. just oh, I don't know. Everything about that scene is why cinema is sometimes the best medium. Yeah, there, there were one or two things I I found perhaps a little overdone. Um, the, all those shots of the air tanks. I mean, possibly because I knew yeah. where the air tanks were going to end up, but it it seemed to me that there was there was it was carefully established that the air tank was there. It was carefully yes. established uh, that Brody is a good shot. It's more subtle with, um, yeah, with the shark cage. I think it was introduced to it. Oh, there's a lot of Chekhov's gun, <laughs> I think, in mm-hmm. Um And yeah, the shark cage is a bit better introduced than the cyanide. I agree the air tanks are, um, are too heavily foreshadowed. Um, oh, obviously, as a scuba diver, I can, I can confirm that you put a hole in an air tank. It produces a lot of thrust, but it does not go kaboom. <laughs> especially since that that's that tank has already been shown to be floating which means it's empty oh roger (laughs) (laughs) but were these air tanks yeah they were yeah it's it's for scuba way out of this god damn it well it had cyanide in it It, it's still way (laughs) way better than the the book what happened remind me what happened to the shark uh uh Quint dies, Hooper dies, uh, Brody is, is, is sitting there in the water, the shark is getting closer and closer, and just before it, just before it kills him, it succumbs to its wounds. It's, oh, it, it's a, God, it's a very 1970s me. ending. I do not remember that from the book. Maybe I stopped reading by then. Jeez, <laughs> that is, that is pretty bad. It has one of those um, famous again to me the first film that I can remember in this in the sequence that has one of the famous closing. Um, this is the thing I say to the villain before I kill it. Line of smile, you son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. Um, Sayonara, Robocop is another one that springs to mind, though that goes the other way. Um, well, even before this, a, a lot of the James Bond films had had something along those lines. The, 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 what, I, what I tend to think of as the Arnie quip, because that's where I first met him. The Arnie quip, oh yeah. Um, I, I... But yeah, um, Con- Connery Bond does quite a bit of this when he's murdering people. Oh, that's true, that's true. Okay, well Brody sells it here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I don't have much more... Do I have much more to say about the Orca sequence? The, the, again, it is another jump scare when Brody is down uh, popping the chum into the water. Uh, slow ahead, I can go slow ahead. You want to come on down here and chum some of this shit? And then the mm-hmm. shark, the closest we've seen, it just pops up into view in the back. It's just Silently, yeah. Silently and just perfectly framed, followed by the oft-imitated, we're going to need a bigger boat. Um, mm-hmm. Which, I don't know, I, I think you have to have seen the original before you appreciate <laughs> all, the, <laughs> all the imitation. <laughs> Um, well, one, one I, thing I, I would point out at this point, um, I, I don't notice it and, until I look for it. There is very little swearing in this film because it's not needed. 
Yes, that's true. So, there, there is swearing, but not dramatic. Yeah, it, it, it's saved for medium extreme situations because when the situation is very extreme, you don't have time. <laughs> well, I'm trying to think of a, a fucking Jaws. Um, there is actually. There's a moment when um, Hooper is suggesting that they haven't got quite the right size of shark, <laughs> um, <laughs> and he said, "Why don't you pop your fucking head in its mouth and find out about it, mm. whether it's got?" Yes, okay, that's it. But you're right. Um, sorry to add swear swear quotient to this podcast, um, but I, I think uh, I just use my default template, which which uh, tags it with mature language because let's face it, it's us. So well, yeah, okay, good. That's it. Um, so, floor, so to me, Jaws is a little like um, Matt Hooper describes the shark. You know, the shark is a a miracle of evolution. It swims and it eats you and it makes little sharks. And that's really all it does. <laughs> well, Jaws runs and it thrills and it entertains. And it makes way too many offshoots, sequels, imitations. And it, well, and that's really all it does. It is not, <laughs> it's not saying... It's not saying any more. It doesn't have any deeper message about the human condition. It doesn't have, uh, as I say, it touches on social commentary to use as colour, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't. It's not really interested in it. It's interested in the shark and Brody and um, you enjoying yourself while you're eating the popcorn. But for me, I forgive it all of that because because I like being entertained, and sometimes that is a yeah. nice thing to do. Um, and and, and because... it's it's still a story about people. It's not just, you know, go, go up against sharks, see if you can hit it, roll, 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 roll to hit, roll for damage. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> How's how, check for the boat? You hit upon it perfectly. It's an action movie with characters in it, and characters that it takes enough time for you to care about, but not too much that you are bored. Um, <laughs> They are distinct characters. And I think you very astutely pointed out, yeah, it really is a trio at the end. It's not we're the goodies, he's the baddies. They're all they're all just trying to achieve the same thing from very different angles. Yeah. Um, a couple of production-related points. Um, I would say there is one shot that I would really want to get rid of, or at least do in a different way, and okay. that, that that is that vertigo dolly zoom um, during the attack on Alex. <laughs> Oh, now that is one because of the very this is first such times. A, yeah, but Vertigo had done it. People had seen Vertigo, and it, it yeah. comes comes off as desperately derivative to the point where you know, ten minute, ten years later, nobody would do this because it was such a cliche. I, ooh, I would, I, I think it works very well. I mean, Vertigo, I think overdid it. Um, I, I know Spielberg obviously lifted. I mean, he was a huge fan of Hitchcock. He is mm-hmm. a huge fan of Hitchcock. Um, and obviously lifted it. I, I, it's used one time. Well, that, that that's, film. that's the thing. It, it feels like, look, I know this trick and I'm going to use it okay. ra- rather than this is actually having an effect. I may be defending it too much because it's the first time I encountered it. And Fair so enough. to me, it's very original. <laughs> Um, but uh, and so to me, Vertigo is derivative. Uh, don't get me wrong; I flipping love Vertigo. Um, even though Vertigo is not fear of heights, I will point out it's a medical condition. <laughs> the 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 other thing that um, there seems to have been quite a lot of disagreement about. I mean, when I was first hearing about this, uh, the the orthodoxy was that Bruce was rubbish, and therefore they had to use it less than they planned. Yes, and then. Uh, more recently, Spielberg has said, "No, no, that was always my plan." 
but obviously you don't know whether you trust him. There certainly it, it, it does seem to be the case from the production notes that uh, you were meant to see it during the at least one of the earlier attacks in a bit more detail. He, he, Bruce was going to be involved in the attack on Alex, it's and, and, and that was felt that was felt something. to be too gruesome. Yes. And so, so the first look you get at it is is when it comes into the lagoon, I, and, and even I, it's, that's just a quick look. It's hard to know, actually, isn't it? Um, because it's quite graphic in other way. You know, the leg floating to the bottom of the uh, the pond, and the, um, uh, all I can say is the end result works perfectly. In mm-hmm. that you really only start to see the shark yeah. on the orca. Um, and uh, well, for, for that matter, my experience of blood underwater is that really it, it's gone black by. A few inches down, it doesn't look red anymore. Yes. But, yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I will not probe your experience. <laughs> but but uh, but you've got to have red dye because it yeah you know, it it's producing the right effect. If you use black smoke underwater, it just w- wouldn't look right. Looks like someone's attacking an octopus. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying. The, the downsides of Jaws uh, for me. Uh, I don't take its lack of um, subtexts. Uh, <laughs> having said that, saying that uh, saying that sentence re- reminded me of something Garth Marenghi, my favourite author Garth Marenghi, said, <laughs> which is that um, I don't use subtext. I've known authors that use subtext, and they're all cowards. <laughs> but uh, which is, which I don't uh, endorse. But uh, it does make me laugh. Um, I, d- I, I don't think there's a lot of hidden meaning to it. Uh, on the other no. hand, pe- people people have written long theses about. This or that or the other bit of symbolism, so in in the film, so you know mm, you, you can, you can scrape stuff out if you really want to. I don't think any of that was intended personally. Um, uh, well, much like people have done with Lord of the Rings, and again, I feel it's just a rollicking good story, very well told. Mm-hmm. Um, Jaws probably better told than Lord of the Rings, but that's um, <laughs> that's uh, I would keep that to myself. Um, so I suppose we should talk about the legacy of the film because there, there was an awful lot of shock murdering. As a result, well, that is my big. As um, someone who has devoted a reasonable portion of my life to animal advocacy and animal welfare, the fact that Jaws is probably directly responsible for the deaths of—I uh, mean, I don't know how many you could count, but countless sharks—is um, mm-hmm. a legacy which sits very uncomfortably on me. Now, I don't know how that weighs up with the passion for shark fin soup. Or just a uh, side effect of uh, hideous commercial fisheries. Um, but I can't deny that it's had an effect. And I, I, all, all I can say in my defence, I don't believe that was intended by the filmmakers. Yeah, well, uh, Peter Benchley in particular w- was, was very shocked by it and became something yes. of an advocate for... Uh, sharks after this and marine, yes, marine wildlife in general. I, I must admit there's one bit I... I uh, Get perversely amused by uh, when when we first see Quince, what would you call it? Shack. Yeah, right. Yes. He he's boiling a shark jaw to use as a trophy. Yes. It's cartilage. It will just dissolve if you do that. <laughs> yes. I I, I love the idea that <laughs> I love the idea that somebody might actually have tried that and then wondered what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> Scooped out the jelly afterwards. Um, no, what uh, what, yeah. what you want if you want if you want to clean a shark jaw is wood lice, I suspect. Woodlice or ants, but woodlice are more fun. 
I think we segued away from animal welfare. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, that is my least favourite legacy. Another unfortunate legacy of Jaws is the proliferation of the blockbuster and, well, shark movies particularly, specifically. The Meg, mm-hmm. Sharknado, Deep Blue Sea, none of which are, uh, not to mention the numerous um, uh, sequels of Jaws. All and, and rip-offs, Orca, Grizzly, uh, just to mention Piranha, the first few. Yeah. Um, Piranha 2, James Cameron's first. <laughs> <laughs> um, Piranha 3, which kills off Matt Hooper right at the beginning, or a very similar character. Uh, and, um, and, and all too many of them, of course, because you know, the, the quick cash-in is... is or even the slow cash in very often says, "Well, we don't really know what worked about this film, so we're going to imitate it as much as we can without actually being sued." Yeah. So yeah. practically all of these imitators have the guy who doesn't want to close the beaches, the ski resort, yeah. the whatever. <laughs> yes, I agree. Yes, um, to the point where that has become a massive cliche that part of the action hero thing is um, it's going to. They did a great. Um, parody of it on the Armstrong and Miller show, which I used to enjoy, which is a, a, a meteorologist who suddenly realised it's going to piss down. <laughs> no, one, <laughs> no one will believe quite what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's played very in the Jaws vein. And, and I, I think that um, is why one could reasonably say that, that this is a masterpiece, isn't the definition we're using, because it has been so profoundly influential in later film. Yes. E- even if it doesn't have some of the subtlety that you might see in some of the other stuff. I Well, I think, you know, there's a reason films are imitated. Um, sometimes it's just pure blockbuster dollars, you know, uh, film. Mm-hmm. That, but um, I think this is widely imitated because of its masterful characterization and editing as well. Uh, just very good storytelling. It's a fairly simple story, ultimately, mm-hmm. but it is very well characterized, very well told. Um, uh, there's not many scenes that, that that there's not many films that that match it, despite its many imitators. Yeah. Um, I, but it 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 has some flaws. I'm not prepared to go into any more of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, summing up for me at least, um, obviously not a perfect film, but I I enjoyed it a great deal. Good. So, <laughs> not that that's right. I, so for it, me, it's, it's the thing I keep asking for. It's 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 the human-driven action film. Yeah, and that is it's the original one, and a seldom. I mean, there have been other ones. We've mentioned Die Hard as a very good example of another one. Um, but that many, it's amazing how many films don't do it. In fact, a lot of the Marvel, the modern Marvel films, actually manage to get that right as well. Despite talking about superhumans, they often remember to characterise their superhumans, unlike the DC. Uh, films, but I won't. Uh, I've I've only seen about two of the Marvel films. At some point, I will catch up. I may even become a superhero fan, which I haven't. They yet, they but, are. Yeah. I, I, I've taken it a whole. They're a fascinating <laughs> cinematic legacy. I, it's unfortunate they've obliterated a lot of other types of film, but they're very good. Um, I would like to ask you, Roger, what we've asked it at the end of a few podcasts. I think we've got to it in the Vaulty Falcon. What were the top ten films of 1975? Um, I have a feeling, unusually, our film might be in there. Yeah, with um, more than twice what the runner-up brought in. Oh, goodness me. Uh, so, yeah, I had had a look down the list. Uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Ooh. Uh, Jack Nicholson coming back. Is that number two? Yep. Oh wow! Okay. Um, 
that's a uh, shampoo, which I would characterise as dreary 1970s sexual politics. <laughs> there, no, there, I'm not going to argue. There is this feeling about the 70s, uh, I, I guess it from a lot of books and a lot of films, that people are having tawdry and unwise sex not because they actually want to or because they enjoy it, but simply because they feel it's the sort of thing they ought to do. <laughs> yeah. oh, sounds yeah. just like my life. Uh, Dog Day Afternoon. Oh, that is a good film. And b- mildly revolutionary in its own way. Uh, the Return of the Pink Panther. Oh, that is, I mean, a very different, but I enjoy that film too. Mm-hmm. Uh, your Doug Bads. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, three, three Days of the Condor. I've never seen that film. I'd like to. It, it has its moments. It, it's, again, I think it, it was a relatively early example of something that has since become cliche. Okay. Uh, Funny Lady, which was a musical comedy with uh, Streisand, loosely a sequel to oh, Funny yeah. Girl. Uh, the Other Side of the Mountain, a romantic drama. No, no idea. Uh, Tommy, as in the Who rock opera. Oh, really? I have seen it. Well, this must be the year I've seen more films than any other. <laughs> and one I'm, I will bet you haven't, which is The Apple Dumpling Gang, which is basically a, a comedy western, Orphans Strike Gold. You are correct in your <laughs> supposition. I have not seen it. And that's an interesting top ten list with our film at the top. Um, how interesting. I don't know if it's the best film of the ones we've discussed so far. Um, it was but... the one I enjoyed most, but it's also the most accessible. Yes. So... And I, it's interesting because the second would, for me, be the Maltese Falcon, which, again, is, is pretty accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I flipping enjoy Chinatown as well, I must say. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah Ch- Chinatown feels like a 70s film in a way that this doesn't, I think, is the way I would put it. Even though I, yeah, I, I enjoy them both, the, but yeah. in, different, in, in, a, in a different lens. I think there's a reason this feels like a modern film, and that's because it had a huge influence on everything we watch nowadays. I will point out another 1975 film that isn't in the top ten list, The Man Who Would Be King. Oh, don't do that to me. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Because on my days, Ron, I don't say Jaws is my favourite film of all time. I say The Man Who Would Be King is my favourite film of all time. (laughs) How is that not in the top ten? That is a flipping... Oh my god, you have my permission to bugger off. That'll do, with or without your bleeding permission. Oh my god, I love that film. <laughs> Roger, you've caused an existential crisis in me. I might have to watch that. <laughs> oh dear, how oh, terrible. Crikey. That was John Houston, wasn't it? Uh, I think so. Oh, oh, goodness me, I love that film. I'm sorry we're missing that. I thought there was an earlier film, I must say. But anyway, I, I think he tried to make it much earlier. Uh, with different actors, possibly Cary Grant. Uh, I, he was originally thinking of Bogart and Gable, apparently. Oh, Gable, that's how I was... Uh, but, yeah. I mean, I, I, I haven't seen many films with Clark Gable, I must say, but much as I love Bogart and much as I love Treasure of Sierra Madre, I can't imagine it with anyone but um, Connery and Kane. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Oh, why did you spring that on me? That's, that's painful. <laughs> that is painful. Dear me. Because, okay. I'm, because I'm trying to pervert your your um, original pure idea of one film per year, that's why. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, we'll, we'll stick with it. Um, we have been, so far, um, thinking of a film that would be a nice juxtaposition to the one we just watched, and bouncing back in time to that. Uh, 
I would say so far we've failed to think of a, a good analogue for Jaws, unless you have a good suggestion. Well, with, with the others, I, I think it's been very clear that one could name sort of two or three films that that were clear influences. Mm. Uh, w- without the Maltese Falcon, there is no Chinatown. W- w- without Bonnie and Clyde, there is, there is no um, Badlands. Yes. This, I mean, there are lots of things that go into it. Uh, but I, d- I don't think I could point to a, a single film that is an absolute precursor of it. I agree. That, that, As... There's there's wartime drama. Uh, yeah. that There's monster films. Disaster movies, as you've mentioned. Yeah. So. Well, if we don't have an obvious choice, we may as well head forward to 1976. Mm-hmm. And I think the film that probably. Um, leaps out at me, I think to both of us, the one we probably should watch, though I, I have seen it, I'm slightly trepidatious to watch it again. Well, why, why, why don't you go for one you, one you haven't seen? I mean, Well, um, oh, that's a good point. Um, I feel like we should watch Taxi Driver, honestly. Mm-hmm. I feel like that is an important film. Um, and a good film. <laughs> I will say no more. <laughs> um, but uh, I think it probably is the one to watch. I shall get on to that next time. Year, because it is the year uh, into which I was uh, debuted. Done, kids. But... Get out of my cinema. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, it only remains for me to say, Roger, 1100 men went into the water, 316 came out, sharks took the rest. Anyway. We delivered the bomb. Oh, I forgot to say June 29th, 1945. <laughs> it was actually... <laughs>